0: you Welcome to our first web broadcast of CMI-TV. This broadcast is the first in a series of webcasts and on-demand classes for the Internet Bible Institute. I'm Rob Congdon, director of both Congdon Ministries International and the Internet Bible Institute. I'm very excited about this expansion of our ministry to the internet world of worldwide television. In addition to these IBI classes, we're going to be offering Bible conference messages, background briefings about current events in the world from a biblical perspective, and other special broadcasts throughout the year. Our first class tonight will be a study of the book of Matthew. We're going to be highlighting Matthew's teaching on the kingdom of heaven and his teaching concerning the prophecy given by the Lord on Mount Olivet, often called the Olivet Discourse. Before we begin, I'd like to explain our class structure, how we're going to structure this evening. IBI classes will meet every month. Check our website for scheduled time and day. Our first class in this series, beginning today, I will teach for 60 minutes. Then we will offer a 15-minute live question and answer session. As you listen to my lecture, you may have questions about some of the things taught or want some further explanations. Send your questions by email and we will try to answer them during the 15-minute question and answer session that follows. Send your questions to questions at condenministries.org. Again, that's questions at condonministries dot org tonight's class is going to cover three foundational areas. They are why study the Book of Matthew? What is the kingdom of heaven or of God, and how are people to recognize God's authorized King-Messiah of
1: the Kingdom.
0: We'll begin our class by answering the question, Why study the book of Matthew? I chose the book of Matthew because it has several unique and foundational qualities necessary for today's Christian And for those of you who are seeking to understand if God is involved in our world today. Now, this course is not just for believers, but for those of you who are looking for answers. Looking for answers to questions like, is there a God? Can he be known? Is there purpose to the world? And where is the world going? Where in the world is it going Further, the book of Matthew will enable us to understand God's plan of history and where we are in that plan of God's. We're going to focus on the book of Matthew, and we're going to see how it is the key to God's plan in the kingdom of heaven, which is also called kingdom of God in the scriptures. Both phrases refer to the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom. Matthew offers the best teaching on that kingdom because he focuses upon the king of that kingdom. In today's Christianity, there are basically three very different understandings or positions concerning the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. These three views are, is the kingdom now, right now in our world, is the kingdom now but not yet? Or is the kingdom still future? Deciding upon one or the other of these positions will not only determine one's approach to the Bible as we study prophecy, but will have a serious impact on our understanding of God's plan for the world and for us individually. Now, in reality, there really are only two views For the kingdom now and not yet view is a new Calvinist variation, or I use the term, a compromise between kingdom now versus kingdom future. Thus, there are really only two ways to approach biblical prophecy. Typically, these two views are labeled by their views on the millennium. The first view held by Reformed theology interprets prophecy from an amillennial or amillennial position. That is, they believe there is no future earthly kingdom of Christ, and as a result, see most prophetic scriptures as having been fulfilled by A.D. 70. Basically, the only prophecy unfulfilled at this time is the return of Jesus Christ to then begin the eternal age. See, they don't believe there's any thousand-year millennium. The second view, held by biblicists, dispensationalists, and by me, interprets prophecy from a millennial position. That is, we believe that all of history is preparing the world for the 1,000-year literal earthly kingdom of Christ that will begin with his coming back to the earth in the future. Now, whichever view one takes will affect your view of history, your view of world events today, and your understanding of future and life in eternity. It will also answer the question, is God involved in this world? And most importantly, is God involved in your life and my life? Determining which of these two views is biblical and correct depends on a person's understanding of the biblical teaching of the kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. For that understanding is crucial to understanding biblical prophecy and, again, God's plan for history. Additionally, it provides a balanced approach to prophecy in light of world events today. There are so many people running off with wild ideas. You need to have a balanced approach from the scriptures. Finally, It gives true purpose to individual lives today, tomorrow, and in eternity. Without this proper understanding, eternity becomes merely a place to sit on a cloud and play a harp. Now, I have a friend who's a harp player, and so he asked me a question about this. He got upset when I said, uh, we don't want to just sit on a cloud and play a harp. He loves his harp. So don't get me wrong. If you're a harp player, then you probably will play a harp in heaven also. I'm not going to rule that out at all. But you see, our life in eternity is so much more than just focused upon a single activity. As I will explain in a future IBI series that will be on eternity, life will be very fulfilling, very exciting in the future age for all those who know the Lord as their Savior. Now again, the book of Matthew establishes the answer as to which system of biblical interpretation, including prophecy, is correct. It does this because Matthew fully defines, number one, God's use of kingdom as it relates to the earth. Matthew fully defines God's plan for the kingdom in history, past, present, and future. And Matthew defines God's plan for the king of that kingdom, Finally, Matthew describes God's plan for those of the church age. Now, the church age are all true believers from Acts 2 to the rapture. God's plan for those of the church age with respect to their service to the Lord in the future, both the millennium and in eternity. It is for this reason that the book of Matthew played such an important role in the early church of the first two centuries. For this book, is the most frequently quoted book by the early church fathers in those first two centuries. Matthew himself directly quotes from the Old Testament 53 times. He alludes to it 76 times. In it, he emphasizes 23 times that the action he's talking about is recorded because it is that which was spoken by the prophets. It is his linking to the Old Testament and the prophets that is Matthew's way of presenting Jesus Christ as Israel's long-awaited Messiah and king, I should add. Ancient Judaism also believed that 456 passages of the Old Testament were messianic, So this linkage by Matthew is truly, truly significant. Personally, I truly enjoy the Old Testament. So Matthew seemed natural for me to study based on his extensive use of the Old Testament. But seriously, you see, without an understanding of the Old Testament, we're not ready to understand the prophecy of the new. Having said all this, let us now start our study and see Matthew's purpose of writing this scripture specifically Matthew gives two prime purposes for his writing the first is to present Jesus of Nazareth as the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke of as the Messiah the long awaited one Emmanuel God with us Uh, please take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1 and we'll begin in verse 21 again Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 and we'll read 21 through 23 and she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was, there it is, spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Secondly, Matthew seeks to present Jesus of Nazareth as the king of the greatest earthly kingdom this world will ever see, the kingdom of heaven. So look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. You see, central to these purposes is Matthew's use of, of the phrase kingdom of heaven and the king of that kingdom. First of all, this phrase kingdom of heaven is not used by any other writer in the Bible. Very interesting. Now, yes, there are general references to kingdom. They're found throughout the whole Bible. But the phrase kingdom of heaven is unique to Matthew. And in fact, the phrase kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are only used In the New Testament that only by five writers and they're only in ten books of the New Testament interestingly Matthew is the only biblical writer to use the phrase kingdom of heaven using it 31 times in his gospel now he does also use the kingdom of God four times and by studying his usages of it we see that he uses them interchangeably but sometimes with a slightly different focus. Now, Mark uses kingdom of God 14 times. Luke uses it 31 times in his gospel and also six times in his book of Acts. Surprisingly, John uses it only two times. Now, the apostle Paul uses it eight times and in only five of his 13 epistles. Thus, 65 times the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is used in the New Testament. What that means is that Matthew's unique usage of kingdom of heaven represents one-third of all the kingdom of heaven God references in the New Testament. A careful study of the usage and context of each of these passages reveals that the kingdom of heaven And the kingdom of God refer to the same kingdom, but with a different emphasis or focus. Some people have asked, well, what is the best translation of this phrase then? So I want us to look at the phrase kingdom of heaven. We're going to see there are actually two possibilities of translating it. Because we're studying Matthew's use, we are going to restrict our study to his use of kingdom of heaven. Recognizing the uniqueness of this phrase, we need to understand what Matthew's first readers, those in the first century who first read the Gospel of Matthew, understood it to mean. How did they see it? For that, we need to do a wee bit of grammar. I can hear you out there. Oh no, not grammar. Now don't worry, you don't have to be a Greek scholar for this course. But you do need to remember that God invented grammar and language as tools to clearly define what he means as he communicates to us. The New Testament was written in Greek, so we need to consider what its grammar teaches us, if we're to clearly understand what God is saying to us today. Now, in the original Greek, the grammar of the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is the word of is actually in what's called the ablative. Now, again, I can hear you. So what? You know, ablative was a word that I had never heard of or understood until the space program of the United States. You see, upon re-entry to the Earth's atmosphere, Early space capsules would heat up as a result of the friction of the atmosphere against that capsule. In order to protect the astronauts during reentry, NASA had to find a way to keep that small capsule from either getting too hot inside for the astronauts to live, or worse yet, from burning up. Thus, they wanted the heat to, instead of going into the capsule, to be bounced off back into space, obviously to protect the capsule. So, how did they do this? They did this with a thing, a shield, between that rushing atmosphere and the capsule with the astronauts in it. The shield would heat up, and when it became very hot, pieces of it would start breaking off and flying off into space. When they flew off, they took the heat with it. So the astronauts remained totally safe, totally comfortable. Well, they needed a name for that shield. So they named it after the grammatical term ablative because the term ablative described the very action that their shield was carrying out. You see, to be ablative literally means to be taken from. That is, something is ablative when it leaves its original position, in this case, the shield, and flies off into the atmosphere. Grammatically, in Matthew's phrase, kingdom of heaven, the Greek preposition of is the ablative. Thus, our English word of should truly be translated from if it's going to represent the Greek ablative. In doing this, we also obtain the proper idea about God, for God wants us to understand his meaning of this phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. It truly should be is that the kingdom is from heaven, or from God, the term for the ablative. This reflects the source, where the word of reflects the ownership of it, or the possession. Now, I don't wanna get too technical or fight over small words in a phrase, but in this case, the difference between of and from, I believe, is a major difference. You see, I believe our God is a very exacting God. Let me give you an example of how exacting he is. In the book of Galatians, the difference between the singular and the plural is crucial. The little letter S, changing it from singular to plural, would have a major theological change to the verse. In Galatians 3.16, The identification of Jesus Christ is identifying him as the seed, singular, not of the seeds. Now we're going to go into this a little bit more later on in our lecture, but the difference here results in a person either believing one prophetic view or the other in terms of the kingdom of heaven. You see, the first view, the amillennial view, believes that the kingdom of God is correct. And grammatically, of means it is the possession of God. Therefore, when they explain this kingdom of God that he possesses, they say that the kingdom of God is a present spiritual kingdom in our hearts, one in which God works through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not a physical, earthly, future kingdom. Therefore, of course, there's no millennial rule of Christ on the earth in the future. Now, this view has had far reaching consequences since its first inception in the 4th century. The second view, we've already called it the millennial view, believes it's a kingdom created upon the earth by the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes down from heaven to rule the earthly kingdom at his second coming. You see, in this case, the kingdom with Christ comes down onto the earth. It is from heaven where he comes from. Therefore, the kingdom from heaven. In the other use, the kingdom of heaven is the idea that it's really just of Christ's kingdom in our hearts, and it's just He possesses it in us. Interestingly, Matthew not only calls it the kingdom from heaven, but his disciples' prayer says, Thy kingdom come. Same idea is coming from to. Therefore, it's not the kingdom now. It's certainly not the kingdom now and not yet. It's the kingdom future. This kingdom will last a thousand years with Christ as king. Thus it will come from God. And the idea of the ablative, rather than people just being in God's kingdom or it being spiritually in our heart, it will come from heaven. Kingdom coming from heaven to this earth for a thousand years with Christ as king is what the early church taught for the first 300 years of its existence. Today, however, it's a minority view. But you know, I believe it's a true view, the true biblical view. By the way, check in your Bible. Whenever there was a vote, the majority was always wrong and the minority was always right. So don't be afraid to be the minority. There are many practical results as an outcome of which position you take. I hope that we can help you to decide what is the correct, the biblical position through our study of Matthew. Now we're going to now have to look into some of the background of the view of the kingdom of God. The Bible teaches that God the Father rules all of creation, the entire universe, as a king. As such, he governs everything that happens in that universe. He is the king of a government of the entire creation and universe. We call the realm his kingdom, and to distinguish it from God the Son's future kingdom, we call it the universal kingdom of, possessed by, God. Hence, the universal kingdom of God is really the correct term for this. This universal kingdom of God is taught extensively in the Old Testament and always portrays God the Father as the King. But when we come to Matthew and the New Testament, we are speaking of a kingdom from heaven or a kingdom from God. There is a difference here. So, pointing this out and kind of stressing this whole fact, the differences, let's see what the kingdom from heaven really is. As we look through the Bible's teachings about kingdoms, we find that it always refers to God the Father's universal kingdom in the present tense, the now. That's the kingdom now, if you will, (laughs) the universal kingdom. That means that it existed as long as the creation has existed from the beginning of time and then it will continue through eternity. But interestingly, when we study the use of kingdom as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom, we see it is always in the future tense and it speaks of future time, never in the present. As we'll see in Matthew, there are many references that also add to that concept. Matthew says many times the kingdom is at hand or literally near in the original. It was not yet here in Matthew's day, nor has it come in our day. It is still future. Now, does the Bible really teach a future kingdom with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom? Absolutely. I think we can see this better by turning to the old testament in the book of daniel so if you'll turn to daniel chapter 2 and we'll begin in verse 44 now in this passage this is significant to understand daniel is interpreting the dream of the king nebuchadnezzar of babylon that king has seen a statue made of four materials, and he's asked Daniel for an interpretation. Daniel's going to interpret it, explain it, and what it means to the king of Babylon and to us. So we read in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. This is a very significant passage and very relevant to what we're looking at here. You see, since God the Father's universal kingdom existed from the creation of the universe, it was never set up. It has always existed in time. But here we read of a kingdom that will be set up by God the Father therefore it will have a beginning and ultimately it will destroy notice it says all these kingdoms It will break in pieces and consume them so it's going to destroy kingdoms these kingdoms those kingdoms are going to be referenced from the vision of Daniel 2 and this kingdom has a beginning it's set up But once it begins, we are told here that it will stand forever. Again, the context of Daniel 2 is a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. It is a dream of sequential set of kingdoms on the earth, beginning with the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar governed as king, the Babylonian Empire. That kingdom was the Neo-Babylonian Empire. In verse 238, we see... And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of heaven, hath given unto thine hand, speaking to the king, and hath made thee ruler over them, thou art the head of gold. So Daniel clearly identified the first kingdom as Nebuchadnezzar's Neo-Babylonian Empire. In the dream of Daniel 8, God again describes the sequence of kingdoms and names the next two. Two of them he named specifically there. In 8, verse 20, we are told the Mede-Persian Empire. Now, the Mede-Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire and absorbed it. In verse 21, we are told the third kingdom is the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire conquered the Mede-Persian Empire and absorbed it. You see how each empire and its government was conquered by the next one and absorbed the previous one. Daniel gives us characteristics also of a fourth empire based on these dreams. That fourth empire will destroy and absorb the Greek empire. Now, Daniel doesn't name the fourth empire. There's a reason for this. When Daniel wrote this, there was no such thing as Rome or Roman empire. There was no word, Rome, period. Now, God in his prophetic understanding or God in his all-knowing could have said, well, it'll be Roman, and everybody would have said, well, what's Roman mean? But he chose not to. Instead, he chose to give us characteristics of this fourth empire. We can determine from those characteristics what it is, and then looking at history, we see that in reality, it's clearly the Roman empire. You see, by studying the dreams and interpretations of Daniel 2, 8, 9, and 10, we see that the final kingdom, that is going to destroy the first four will be a fifth kingdom that will last forever. Now, <laughs> logically, come on, if the first four governments are earthly kingdoms, why wouldn't the fifth one be also an earthly kingdom? Why does it have to be a spiritual kingdom when the other four that it will destroy are physical kingdom? The Bible clearly defines this fifth kingdom as having a beginning in the latter days when it will smite the others. Look in verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar saw till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet. Remember the image stood for four kingdoms that were of iron and clay and break them into pieces. This fifth kingdom, here it says a stone cut without hands, suggesting it's not of man, that will come and establish a new kingdom. Obviously, this and other references in Daniel clearly indicate it is Jesus Christ. He will come, that man he left from somewhere. He will come from heaven. He will come down like a stone down and destroy those four earthly kingdoms. He will be sent from outside the creation by God the Father. Thus, Daniel must be speaking of a kingdom coming kingdom that will come From heaven to the earth. Destroy the existing kingdoms and be eternal. Now we need to turn also to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. We're going to read here of Daniel, uh, Daniel, excuse me, David speaking. And we're going to see that God has given a promise in this passage to David. First Chronicles 28, verse 5. And of all my sons, David speaking of his sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons. He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Notice he's speaking of the kingdom here of the Lord. Uh, this kingdom of the Lord has the same construction as the kingdom from heaven or from God in Matthew, or the kingdom from God in the gospels. In this verse, we see that Solomon's right to rulership came from the Lord of heaven. Now, no one reading this in David's day could possibly think that the throne spoken of here for David's son, Solomon, would be a spiritual throne in a spiritual kingdom. They would only think of the physical throne of the kingdom of Israel on the earth. Surely, this prophecy does not refer to God's throne, spiritual throne. It doesn't refer to God's universal kingdom. What it refers to, plain and simply, is the throne of David for his descendant Solomon and ultimately for his descendant, who will be the Messiah. Thus, what we have very clearly here in Scripture is two kingdoms, or actually a sub-kingdom within God's universal kingdom. We have God the Father's universal kingdom with God the Father, king of that kingdom. He extends it over all his creation and all that's contained within it. Within there, on the earth, will be a kingdom that will come from heaven or from God that is upon the earth and led and ruled by God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as King. Never forget that the scriptures clearly teach that it is a real, physical, earthly kingdom. Now, there are many other references that support this teaching But we're going to have to move on to develop our understanding of this kingdom before we can understand the Olivet Discourse and its prophecy. So we're going to next look at what is a kingdom by definition, and then we're going to see how you get the authorized rulers for it. Having explained why I chose for us to study the book of Matthew and the importance of the term kingdom from heaven, we need to next understand the three essential elements, three essential elements or requirements of a kingdom. They are, a kingdom must have a ruler with proper authority. A kingdom must have a realm of subjects to be ruled. And finally, very importantly, A kingdom must have the actual exercise of the function of rulership over the realm. That means the king must actually be in the realm and ruling that realm himself. Today we're going to consider this first aspect, the properly authorized king. He must be a proper king. He can't be a usurper. In our next class, we'll see how the kingdom was offered to its subjects by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we will consider and determine when the king, Jesus Christ, will bring his rulership over the reign realm, which will be explained clearly in the prophecy of the Olivet Discourse. So that will be the concluding part of our series of classes. We begin now by determining the authorized ruler of the kingdom of heaven By turning to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Where else shouldn't we start but the first verse? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the king, the son of Abraham. As you read on, and I'm not going to read all the names, but as you come to verse 17, you have a complete genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth as given by Matthew. Now, you see, this is crucial. For a king of Israel to establish that he is the authorized king is based in part on his genealogy. Now drop it down again to Matthew 2 verse 1. We've read this before, but I'm going to repeat it anyway. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Very significant in this passage here. Herod had declared himself the king of the Jews. So what these wise men are really asking or implying is a questioning of Herod's right or authority to be king of the Jews. You see, Herod had not inherited through his genealogy the kingdom of the Jews. Herod was not legitimately authorized to be the king based on his genealogy. That's why Matthew chapter 1 laid out the careful genealogy of Jesus Christ. Instead, for Herod, Rome had declared him king of the Jews. But these wise men really didn't recognize Herod as the king, rightful king of the Jews. Remember, a true kingdom, first characteristic, is a king with proper authority. Now look at verse 4. And when he, that's Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Where Christ should be born. He didn't say, Where is this king supposed to be born? He said, Where the Christ should be born. Clearly, in asking this, the spiritual leaders recognized the heart of the question is, Where's the Messiah? And they knew that the reference to the king of Jews combined with these men from the east meant that the birth referred to was that of the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. As the account progresses in Matthew, we find that the wise men not only came to see the new king, but also to worship him, suggesting much more than mere political power of this king. They were looking for also the Messiah. They followed the scriptures given to them by the spiritual leaders in Israel of the day. They went and found the baby in Bethlehem, just as prophesied by the prophets, spoken by the prophets in Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Their worship and gifts acknowledged this unique baby as both, notice this, king of the Jews and as the Messiah. That's a twofold acknowledgment. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. And they were come into the house. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Wow, that's exciting. This account given by Matthew clearly shows that the baby of Bethlehem, named as Jesus is recognized by Matthew as both king of the Jews and the Messiah. Wow. But what about God's authorizing or recognition? Well, we do know, obviously, that other babies were born at the same time in Bethlehem. For we read that Herod had all babies two years old and younger killed during this period. So there wasn't just one baby in Bethlehem and therefore he had to be the king and messiah. No, 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 no. There were other babies. But this is the one that Matthew shows by the genealogy. He documents Jesus' legal right to be king. But we said there's two parts to this. King and messiah. So what is Jesus Christ's legal right to be the Messiah? The answer to that lies in a chain of Old Testament prophecies that indicate that one person who is authorized to be the Christ or the Messiah. We need to either learn this, perhaps for some of you for the first time, or for those of you who are familiar with this, to review the prophecies in our mind Before we'll be in a position to understand Matthew 21, 22, and 23, which gives us the context of Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. So we're going to now have to study the Messianic prophecies that point to Jesus as the Authorized Messiah. The first prophecy is a very familiar one, delivered to Satan and heard by Adam and Eve. Turn to Genesis three, verse fifteen. I'm sure many of you know well this verse. In Genesis three, fifteen, we're in the garden. Adam and Eve have sinned, and the Lord now is going to speak first to Satan. In verse 14, it says, The Lord God said unto the serpent, verse 15, I, God, will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, between thy seed, Satan, and her seed, Eve's seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This verse teaches us that at some point, Eve's seed will bruise or literally crush the head of Satan. And but at some other point, E uh, Satan shall bruise the heel of Eve's seed. Now, a bruise you can heal from, you can survive. A crushed head, no, no solution. So what we have here is that Satan's head will be the beginning of the bruising of Satan or the destroying of his power will begin with Christ's victory over death and the grave so long ago. It will lead to Satan's ultimate defeat, casting him first into the bottomless pit and then into the lake of fire. Jesus Christ's bruising of his heel occurred at the cross also. There he provided deliverance from sin and restoration to God for all who would turn to him as their savior, according to Galatians 1.4. You see, there he shed his blood. There he paid For our sins, for my sins, your sins, if you've trusted him as your Savior, he paid for those sins and was your substitute and my substitute on the cross. And in that he began the destruction of Satan. For those seeking to know the Messiah, God carefully now defines in Scripture from this first prophecy on who the promised seed, Eve's seed, would bring about the destruction of Satan and provide for the payment of sins for all who would trust him as their Savior and Lord. Prophecy that was given would add to this description or these qualifications of the Messiah. And as you would consider all the lists of them, it would narrow down to the possible candidates of Eve's descendants who would qualify as the seed. By the time of the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday in Matthew 21 in Jerusalem, only one unique person in all of history met all the qualifications of King and Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I realize that what I am about to present is very familiar to many of you out there, but repetition is always useful, especially in an age that is rapidly forgetting the basis of the Lord's authority in this world. And sadly, the church, many churches, are forgetting His authority in the church. Now, Genesis 3.15 informs us the deliverer would be of Eve's seed, not Adam's. This unique phrase suggests a miraculous virgin birth. It's confirmed in Isaiah 7.14. Now I'm sure you're familiar with the verse. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. According to Isaiah, the seed would be a male and he would be called God with us and born of a virgin, a woman. Therefore, Eve's promised seed would be a divinely conceived male descendant who would not partake of Adam's sin nature that is passed from the father to the child. Yes, say, hate to say it, but our kids' sin nature comes from us, the father's. You see, by this unique virgin birth, that sin nature wasn't transmitted to Jesus and he was sinless because of the virgin birth, a crucial doctrine, because if Christ wasn't sinless, he would have had to pay for his sins and he couldn't have paid for mine or yours. So he had to be sinlessly born. Furthermore, it says God with us, Emmanuel. That means in some way that this baby, this Seed would be both God and man, truly unique. Matthew 1.20 and 21, Luke 1.35, Hebrews 2.14, and 1 John 3.8 confirm that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled these qualifications. Now the second qualification begins, it says, from the day that God promised the seed until Christ's resurrection, get this, both in the Old Testament and New Testament records, we see how Satan sought to corrupt, to disqualify, or to destroy the righteous line of Eve's descendants through whom the Messiah would come. In other words, if Satan could break that line so the seed couldn't come, Satan was safe. He wouldn't be destroyed. Now, with the birth of Jesus Christ and the death on the cross, Satan couldn't stop the seed any further. All that Satan can do today is to try to hold back the return of Jesus Christ. According to the scriptures, Jesus Christ will return when Israel as a nation turns to God and to Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Savior. Until that day, he won't come back. But when they do, he will come back and establish his kingdom on this earth. So what's Satan going to do? How does he stop that return? He destroys every Jewish person. He destroys the nation of Israel. There can be no repentance and Jesus Christ can't come back. Now, I've read the end of the book. Christ will come back. Satan won't stop it. But all through history, he has been trying to destroy initially the line of the Messiah or disqualify it. And once Christ was born, he's been trying to destroy the Jewish people and the nation ever since. That's his goal. So here we have Adam and Eve. They are now going to have children. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Satan says, I've got to stop the line. He begins immediately by prompting Cain to murder his brother Abel in a fit of jealous anger. You see, he believes, Satan did, that God's acceptance of Abel's offering might indicate that it was Abel's line that was going to carry the seed, or at least the one that this line would eventually lead to the Messiah. So he tried to destroy it, because obviously Cain knew he wasn't. But God wasn't stopped. Adam and Eve then had a third son, Seth, through whom the promised one would come. According to Genesis 6, The whole world had become corrupt. Satan had been working on every individual in the world so that every possibility, every candidate of the seed of Eve would be disqualified. Genesis 6, 5 speaks of this corruption. But God had his man, righteous Noah of Genesis 7, 1. Following the flood, Noah's son Ham, one of the three sons, he disqualified his line by his sin. That left only two other sons, Shem and Japheth, qualified. So we basically had three sons of Noah that could carry on the seed. One disqualified his line by his sin. The other two could have potentially been the line. And Luke 3.36 clearly indicates that Shem's line would ultimately be the one that would bring the seed. As the world's population increased, though, God now needed to narrow the line even further on Seth's line of descent from Eve by choosing an individual. He chose a man named Abram of Ur. Through Abram, God renamed him Abraham, father of a multitude. God promised to create a great nation through which, according to Genesis 12, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's clear from Jesus Christ's own words that Abraham understood that the seed was to come through the line of descendants of his. John wrote that Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad in John 8.56. You see, the seed or Messiah not only would bring salvation to Israel, but to all the families of the earth as well. Galatians 3.14 Jesus Christ's substitutionary death, his payment of sins, is potentially for all men and is applied to those who accept Christ as their Savior. Now, fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham depended very simply on providing Abraham with a seed. We're going to see that wasn't quite so simple as it seemed. As time progressed and no son was born to him and his wife, Sarah, Abraham began to consider alternative means by which he could pass on his inheritance. He looked within his own household. He had a large household. And he considered legal heirship. This was a customary option of the day. Typically, a wealthy man, as Abraham was of that time, could designate an heir by adoption in order to continue his line and pass on his inheritance. So to create Abraham's family tree, Abraham considered adopting his steward Eliezer, making him his legal heir, Genesis 15:2. But that wasn't the proper line. God immediately stopped Abraham from this action by declaring, this shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Genesis 4. God's plan required the seed to come through Abraham himself and none other. For God would not allow him to alter the line of descendants by giving it to anyone less than a true biological son of Abraham. Well, God reassured Abraham by repeating his promise to him again in Genesis 15 and verses 4 through 6. In Genesis 15, beginning in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth. He took Abraham out. And he had him look up at the sky, saying, saying, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars. In other words, count the stars. If thou art able to number them, and he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Count the stars, Abraham. That's how many sons you're going to have coming directly from your seed. Sadly, like so many of us, despite assurances from God, time and difficulties clouded Abraham's recollection. Ten years pass. He and Sarah are still childless. Blinded by the pressure of the now, Abraham responds to what he considered to be an insurmountable problem. Sarah suggests that they help God out by giving her Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar, to Abraham to have a child. Now, if this maiden became pregnant, she would have had a surrogate child, one that would be considered Sarah's as well as Abraham's. You see, having a surrogate was an accepted practice in the pagan culture of their day. Sarah urged Abraham to do it man's way instead of waiting For God, listening to his wife, rather than God, 86-year-old Abraham fathered a child with Hagar. That child would be called Ishmael. She gave birth to a son. From Ishmael and his line of descendants, his seed, coming Abraham, Ishmael, on down to today, we have the Arab nations of the world, all descended from the child of the Egyptian handmaiden. You see, Abraham's relationship with Hagar was another attempt by Satan to corrupt the line of the seed of the Messiah. You see, Egyptians, remember, Hagar was an Egyptian, are descendants of Ham's son Mitzraim. Therefore, Hagar's line was already disqualified. To mix with Abraham's, any child those two would have would be disqualified. So that would be improper and would not bring about the Messiah, and Satan could have won if they had stopped there. However, 13 years after Ishmael was born, we now have a 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah, well past the age to have children. But God performed a miracle enabling Sarah to conceive, Genesis 17. She gave birth to Abraham's long-promised seed, Isaac. Now, this was a miraculous conception. Because of it, it appears that Sarah in some ways prefigured the young virgin Mary, who would also have a miraculous conception and give birth to the Son of God, the seed of Eve, the Messiah. Therefore, Abraham's son was a child of promise, Isaac, a conception depending upon an act of God rather than man. Years later, grown Isaac, married, he and his wife, Rebecca, had twin sons. The firstborn was named Esau, the second was Jacob. Jacob. God told Isaac and Rebekah that the elder Esau would serve the younger. Genesis 25. You see, God's still guiding the line where it should be. He indicated the younger would continue the line of the promised seed. Now, although Jacob, and he was a rascal and a schemer, later stealing even Esau's blessing, he eventually repented and was blessed by God in Genesis 28:35 and 48. God renamed Jacob, changing his name to Israel, a prince with God, indicating that he would form the nation of Israel from Jacob's line and descendants. Genesis 32, verses 27 to 28. Ultimately, Jacob fathered 12 sons, and each became the progenitor of one of Israel's 12 tribes. God had progressively revealed that the Messiah would be a male descendant of Eve, virgin-born, without Adam's sin nature, sinless, be both God and man, and descend from Seth, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we'll see eventually David. That's why the genealogy shows us how God's line worked. Finally, prior to his death, Jacob called his sons together to bless them and prophesy of things to come for each tribe's descendants in the latter days. Turn to Genesis 49. This is a prophecy for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. In verse one, it says, Jacob called unto his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you That which shall befall you, the tribes, in the last days. And as we read down in verse 10, he is speaking in verse 9 to Judah. Verse 10 The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and until him shall the gathering of the people be. That's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. In the books of numbers chapters 24, we also see that God again reiterates this concept. So uh, turn with me to no. numbers 24 verse 14. and now behold, I go unto my people, and come therefore I will advertise thee what this advise what these people should do to thy people in the latter days. You see this? We're in the Old Testament. We're in Genesis and Numbers. And they're already talking about the latter days when the kingdom's going to come and the Messiah. Jacob prophesied that the Messiah would come. Now, let me read on. I meant to read verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. There shall come a star of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Back in Genesis 9, Jacob's prophecy signified the seed's governmental rule. Here again, the scepter. A scepter is an insignia of the supreme power of the ruler, king. Holding the scepter, you're the king. And he says a scepter will come out of Judah. He will come during a time of peace because the term Shiloh in our Bible is the equivalent to what we now describe as the millennium. For the term Shiloh means the rest bringer or tranquility. Perhaps a better translation would be, the verb come will translate until he, the one who brings tranquility comes to whom it belongs. The one who brings the, the the millennial kingdom to whom it belongs. The ancient Jewish targum, an Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament, designates Shiloh as a title for the Messiah, not as a place, as does also the Talmud. In Ezekiel's writings. In chapter 21, he links back to this Jacob's prophecy of 49, and he expands on it in Ezekiel 21, verse 26 and 27. He says, Thus saith the Lord God, Remove the diadem, in my Bible, diadem is also a side reference, that's a turban or a hat, and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, abase him that is high, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him, or I will authorize him to receive it. Now, if you look up and study what a diadem is, or as my alternate translation says, turban, the diadem is a reference to the mitre of the high priest. You can find that in Exodus 28 4 and Zechariah 3 5. And obviously the crown is a reference to the king of Israel. In the first part of this prophecy, Ezekiel, it says, remove the high priest's mitre and take off the crown. What Ezekiel is telling us is a future time when Israel would cease to have a high priest, no one to wear the crown, and a king, no one to be a king wearing the crown, so the mitre and the king. It shall be no more, says the prophecy, meaning these two offices the office of high priest and the office of king will come to an end the words indicate it will be no more when until he who come whose right it is until the messiah will restore and unite the two offices in one person when he comes psalms 110:2 and 4 and zechariah 6:13 describe this one prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. He would be both priest and king one day. To all of these qualifications, God added another identifying characteristic. The Messiah would descend from King David. We learn this from Nathan's prophecy to David regarding his house, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 11. God promised David that one of his descendants, thy seed in this passage, would have a kingdom and would rule and reign it forever. The word kingdom in this passage can't mean a spiritual kingdom in our hearts. No. The word kingdom could only mean one thing to David to rule over Israel. Obviously, David was mortal and eventually died. He would sleep. So David knew he was talking about a real kingdom one day that one of his descendants would rule and would continue ruling it forever. But verse 14 is very important. It suggests that the Messiah will be the Son of God. For God declares, I, God, will be his father, that's God the Father, And he shall be my son, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Now as this list of identifying characteristics for the Messiah expanded through the years and all the prophecies, the number of individuals meeting all those characteristics diminished down to one person, Jesus of Nazareth. So let's just quickly review these characteristics. He would be a male descendant of Eve. He would be virgin born and therefore without Adam's sin nature. He would be sinless. He would bring God's presence to humanity. He would be a descendant of Seth, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. He eventually would serve as both high priest and king of Israel. He would start out lowly and abased but be exalted. He would bring in a glorious millennial kingdom to the earth when he returns to the earth. He would be a descendant of King David. He would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He would be eternal, having no beginning or end. He would be God with us, Emmanuel. Approximately a thousand years after the prophecies of Isaiah the angel Gabriel announced God's intention to Mary by proclaiming in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest. There's the term from Daniel, the, the Most High, the Son of the Highest, God the Father, And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. I hope this study has helped solidify that Jesus of Nazareth is truly the legal and authorized one to restore the kingdom from God upon this earth and his millennial reign. One in which all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will serve him. You see, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've accepted that you are a sinner and need a Savior, That Jesus Christ, being sinless, could die on a cross as your substitute and pay for your sins on that cross and thereby offer to you eternal life to as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God. You see, you receive that gift of eternal life from him by grace and by faith alone. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. You, you, can't, you can't do enough to pay for your sins. Only Jesus Christ could pay for your sins on the cross. But you must individually receive him as your Savior and his payment for him to be your Savior. Once you accept him as your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are a part of him, he and you and you and him. He is now your Lord and you are his bond servant he can do this he can offer this to you if he truly was the authorized messiah and he is if you have further questions on how you can know him as your savior uh, contact us talk to a true believer that clearly shows you the scripture or to your pastor how you can know christ as your savior finally Please join us again for our next class on Matthew and the Olivet Discourse. In just a few moments, we're going to begin answering your questions that you've sent in by email. Uh, we will handle as many as we can in 15 minutes. Send them to questions at Now, just before we begin this question and answer session, I want to thank those of you who are supporting this ministry. Many have written and expressed the support of this expansion of our ministry. Without your prayers and financial support and encouragement, we could not put this on the Internet. It is relatively expensive to send these classes out over the Internet. We do appreciate your support.